It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tortoise. Hello, it's James. We're recording this episode in front of an audience here in the Tortoise newsroom. From us at Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. This is what the Royal Navy would have been hoping for. A successful underwater test fire by one of its nuclear deterrent submarines. In an unprecedented move, the Prince of Wales has called for an end to the fighting in Gaza, but that risks a diplomatic row with Israel. NHS in England will roll out Martha's rule in hospitals from April. We now come to the SNP motion on Gaza. Where on earth is the Speaker of the House of Commons? More than one in ten MPs has declared that they have no confidence in the Speaker, Sir Lindsay Hoyle. Well, to help us try and make sense of the news and what really should be leading it, I'm joined here in the newsroom by Giles Wattell, Deputy Editor and World Affairs Editor. Hello, Hello boss. Hello there. <laughs> um, I'm hoping I'm going to get that greeting from everyone. Louise Tickle is here too. Uh, Louise reports on family courts and child protection. You may well have heard her Slow newscasts for us, hidden homicides, fallen women, Griffiths versus Griffiths, and, well, perhaps Snatched. we might even t- talk about it this week. Uh, Louise, anyway, how are you? Uh, I'm well, thank you, after my peanut butter toast. <laughs> Very good. And John Bird is here. John, I'm so pleased you're here, not least because I suppose many, many people who are members of Tortoise or follow what we do journalistically, are admirers of what you've done in creating and building uh, The Big Issue. You're also, of course, a member of the House of Lords. And intriguingly, you're the author of a book. What's it called? Uh, Well, it's a book which um, I laughingly call Do You Sincerely Want to Smash Capitalism and Have a Full Sex Life? Are those those two books in one, or they're the same idea? <laughs> uh, Charles, long story short, what should be leading the news? Senior service surely some mistake, Ed. <laughs> Intriguing. Louise, what's your story? Young offenders locked up in solitary for 21 hours a day. And John, yours? My story is that the House of Lords, the House of Commons, charities... The newspapers, none of them have ever really picked up on the fact that we have to smash poverty because it takes up 40% of all of our expenditure. Uh, And all we do is fart around doing little bits here and a bit there. Okay, well, let's get to 
each of those and give time to each of those. Louise, I'm going to start with you, though, um, not least because I think I know what this story is. Why don't you tell us? <laughs> well, it's it should be an enormous story, but I think it's a hidden story. And although I work on child protection issues and domestic abuse issues, which are some of the most sensitive and difficult stories to get behind, this story, which is about children in prison, is the most difficult investigation that I have undertaken so far. So myself and my colleague, Patricia Clark, have spent seven months trying to find out exactly what is going on behind the bars of Cookhamwood Young Offender Institution in Kent. Because April last year, inspectors went in unannounced, as they're allowed to do. And a few days later, they issued the Secretary of State with what's known as an urgent notification, because they were so alarmed at what they'd seen inside. The state of this country's prisons generally, for them to regard this as particularly alarming and terrible is some statement. So we saw that. We thought, clearly it's terrible. How can we find out more? And we started in the summer absolutely interrogating everything and everybody we could possibly find to see who would tell us what was happening and whether things were improving. And what we discovered, although nobody would go on the record apart from one very brave lawyer, uh, was that the Ministry of Justice was absolutely determined to keep us out. There was to be no public scrutiny, accountability um, from any independent media and what we heard from the people who do have access to the prison and to the boys, who I think we must always remember are children, is that matters have not improved, but they have in fact got worse. Louise, just to kind of wind back a bit. So a colleague of ours here, one of the editors and uh, partners too at Tortoise, Kerry Thomas, we worked together at the BBC. He was the editor of the Today programme, then the editor of Panorama. When we were at the BBC, he, or certainly when he was there, uh, one of the producers there led an undercover investigation into... Medway. Which was also a young offenders institution, It's right? a secure training unit on the same site, in fact, as Cook and Wood. And I still remember the sounds of people, prisoners being abused and brutalised there. And I remember the aftermath of the investigation into Medway in which people, not to mention politicians, people overseeing the prison system, talk not just about improving Medway. In the end, they closed Medway and effectively moved a good deal of that to Cook and Wood, didn't they? But they also talked about changing the culture of talking around prisons. And when I listened to, to your podcast, Listen to Hidden Hell, the thing that I found genuinely confusing about it was why is it that the Ministry of Justice, the Prison Officers Association, the Governor of Cook and Wood, why do you think they all decide not to speak to you? Everyone is terrified who works for the prison service because they would all lose their jobs. Anybody who works for a campaigning organisation or a, a sort of youth provision organisation that goes into Cook and Wood um, is very frightened that should they be identified, no matter what level of anonymity we could give them, they would lose their access to the prison and the boys would therefore lose whatever level of outside scrutiny or influence or support or therapy they get. And the Ministry of Justice um, 
I mean, working on family courts, it's really interesting because you're actually banned by law from reporting on those. But if you've got a good argument, you can go to a judge and make your case. And often they will say, yes, it might take you time and money and effort, but you can get a yes. If you go to the government and ask them about a really sensitive thing, basically children's human rights are being breached in this prison every day. It's being branded by an independent monitoring board as regularly and consistently inhumane. There's no upside to the government in telling us what's going on or letting us in. So it doesn't matter how much we bang on the door, say, can we visit? Please, can we have an interview with the governor? We're happy for it to be a very wide-ranging interview. Can we speak to the Secretary of State? Can we speak to the Minister in charge of Youth Justice? The answer has been a solid no. John, why do you think there's just no interest in helping people understand what's happening in a place like Cook and Wood? Well, it's a bit difficult for me because I was in a Cook and Wood 60 years ago. It was called uh, Campsfield House. I did a short, sharp shock, which was uh, three months of being kicked around and beaten up uh, by the state at the age of 14. Uh, so I've been down that path. Uh, I, would, I would say there was a period in between what I went through uh, and what you're describing and it is a loss of leadership because there is much, much more provision for looking after our children. I mean, talking about human rights with regard to children is very, very new. It is appalling the way that we have allowed ourselves to slip back to the 1950s and the 1960s. John, can you just say what happened to you when you were 14? Well, I was done for stealing cars uh, and bikes and not going to school and being a complete arsehole. And I have to say, by that time, I'd been to court every year from the age of 10 onwards. Uh, and I was just taken in and you, you had handcuffs all the time. I was put in solitary confinement because I was a very disruptive child. I was very aggressive because my family were very aggressive. My father was a, a person who beat 10 colours of shit out of me. So I was a really fucked up human being. Excuse me if, you, if that's all right. Uh, <laughs> And I just wanted to have a go at everybody. And they took me there. And when I came out, I was even worse. And and do you think sitting in a newsroom like this, there'll be people, not least prison officers or people who've been in young offender institutions who listen and think, look, we wish that these places were more humane than they are. But the nature of the environment, the nature of young boys in particular, is that there is extreme violence. One of the things that you described, Louise, is just the speed at which these young men turn to violence. And it's just naive to think that there's any way of avoiding that in prisons that hold adolescent boys and men. But how comes they can do it in Sweden? How comes they can do it in parts of the United States? How comes they can do it in Spain? And these are really, really screwed up young men. And and do you know the answer to that question? Yeah, I know, which is you have to have a pedagogy. You have to look upon it as you're going on a pedagogical journey. So what you're doing is you're turning somebody from a ferocious animal in some senses into a human being. And that is peace, love, a sense of hope and all these things. And unfortunately, uh, most of the officers who work there are just hanging on by the skin of their teeth. It it is very touching, Louise. At the end of the Hidden Hell podcast, one of the people you speak to, Peter, talks about blind luck and faith. I mean, do you have a view, like John, on what's needed to make a place like that change? Everybody 
is pretty much an agreement in the sector. They should all be closed down. Youth offender institutions should be closed down. There is widespread consensus on that. They haven't been closed down for a number of reasons, one of which is potentially structural. We have recently heard that they, that these institutions are working under a PFI arrangement with another eight years left on them. So shutting them down would cost a huge amount of money. It is also really hard to commission the kind of small-scale secure children's homes where a huge number of these children now live. I mean, in one sense, there's a success because in 2008, there were 3,000 children in these youth offender institutions. Now there's less than 400. But those 400, over half of them are on remand for, for very serious charges, but a third of them are never convicted. They may spend longer in the youth offender institution than any sentence they subsequently get. They are disproportionately black and minority ethnic, but the, it feels like the, the inertia that would need to be got over to commission a different kind of provision, like John is talking about, is huge. It's vastly expensive, although it's also vastly expensive to keep children in this situation, about £275,000 per child per place in Cook and Wood for a year. Giles, what do you think? Um, I think... It's extraordinary in the podcast that the governor's job there is described as an entry-level job (laughs) in a non-complex institution. I mean, not least from what you say about your experience in the 50s, this is clearly as complex as it gets uh, in in the prison estate, isn't it? And and the second point about this story that's striking to me, which almost totally separate from the story itself, is the secrecy, which I know... uh, The culture of secrecy, the refusal to engage, comes from the top. But but there's also, some people would say that the media conspires with that. They would say, you know, to be fair, we started talking about this story because Kerry read the Cook and Wood report that came out, what, last summer? April. April, okay. And and I I hadn't seen it, but it was a published report. It certainly hadn't led any... Bulletins. It didn't wasn't on the front pages that that Cook and Wood report, but even in the government's own report of what was happening there, it just had a catalogue of abuse, brutality, suffering. So why, Louise, do you think that a story like this doesn't lead? Huh. So I don't think we care very much about children in this country. Um, I think we are willing to allow them to reach a level of crisis and to to live with the degree of trauma that means that it can end up so damaged that they either end up deprived of their liberty, as we've reported, the case of Becky, um, for over a year now in this particular young woman's case, hugely disturbed young woman, um, but not her fault, Um, or they end up on a different path within the criminal justice system. And at that point, we end up having to spend £300,000 per child per year to look after them. But we're not willing to do the the groundwork within communities, which is, you know, long-term, not sexy, lots of social work, lots of education, lots of sure starts. Those things are easy to cut. It's not so easy to cut when a child's murdered their sibling and you've got to bang them up for 300 grand a year, but it's easy to forget all the other stuff. And that's why children end up in care as well. Um, Charles, let's come to your story. Uh, I took your introduction as being, maybe this is wrong, 
a Sean Connery impression. A bit of a bit of that, but also a bit of drunkenness. Because if you <laughs> if you look at the story um, and its pedigree, you might be inclined to suspect that there's too much drunkenness in the Royal Navy. Very very briefly, this is uh, a. I'm going to repackage a Sensational Sun scoop yes. and garland it with Grant Shapps and a submariner who is a friend of Tortoise. Recently, January the 30th, a Trident uh, D2 missile test fire by a Royal Navy submarine off the coast of Florida misfired and plopped into the water near the submarine. We can get into the details of that, but let's just remember... Um, same kind of submarine, a couple of months ago, maybe maybe four months ago, same reporter actually, Jerome Starkey, formerly of the Times, um, uh, depth gauge failed. Uh, at roughly the same time, the Navy's two uh, capital ships, the um, two aircraft carriers, uh, developed problems with their drive shafts and were uh, unable to put to sea. Uh, they're also short of uh, support ships. This, let's remember, is at a time when Donald Trump is inviting Russia to attack uh, non-US NATO members and a time when uh, Putin is scaring the Baltics, at least, enough for them to issue very serious warnings that after Ukraine comes uh, a Russian uh, threat or to or attack of NATO members crossing crossing that red line. Now, I just want to ask a question. I just want to question. Is the fact that this missile test, I think the official word was plopped into the water, <laughs> does that mean it doesn't work? This is what I asked Rob Forsyth, who was the commander on a uh, nuclear submarine a, li a little while ago. He's retired so he can talk. Uh, it is a very serious possibility that the entire stock is old and the boosters that are supposed to ignite when it's come out of the water on compressed air are, are all old. And so when Grant Shapps said today, this morning, in response to this story, this test reaffirmed the effectiveness of the UK's nuclear deterrent. It was a straight lie. It, re it reaffirms nothing of the sort. In fact, it shows precisely the opposite at a time when it's quite important to have an effective one. The only thing I, w I wanted to add is that in a previous life, I used to write uh, editorials on sufferance, very pompous ones, for pompous page of the newspaper, um, about the importance of an independent nuclear deterrent. I didn't believe a word of it, but I do now. You do, you do believe that an independent nuclear deterrent is necessary? Yes, for the reasons I described, uh, summarised as Trump and Putin. But Charles, I'm interested to understand. Grant Shapps was on the submarine, right, when yes. the test happened? Yes. So how is it possible, genuinely, to witness something that doesn't work and then say that it does? It's obviously extremely important to him, to the Navy to the government to affirm that the deterrent is working. No, I'm being serious. Are they saying, look, we were trying to test getting the missile, if you like, out of the chamber. We weren't testing whether or not the boosters worked, i.e. it worked. Or are they just saying that for some reason or other, the test achieved what it wanted to do? I'm just but trying to give them the, they the are benefit of yeah, the No, doubt. no, no. They are trying to say that. They're splitting hairs. They're saying that this was a missile failure, not an event failure. The event is getting the submarine to where it's supposed to launch, getting it still, 
which is very, very important, and as you say, getting it out of the tube. And it is true that from, the, from that point, once it's out of the water, it's in a sense an American problem or it's their fault because this missile was taken from a pool of Trident missiles uh, at um, Port King or something in, in, in the US. This hasn't been floating around in a British submarine all these years. But uh, um, <laughs> Rob Forsyth's um, uh, description of Shapps' uh, excuse that this was an event and not a missile failure was, and that therefore the, it shows us that the deterrent is still operative is, quote, nonsense, unquote. John Bird, what do you think? Well, I'm, uh, I'm as an ex-Marxist, Engelist, Leninist, Trotskyist, um, I have been looking at what's been happening between us and the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, for many, many years. I was astonished at how badly we treated Russia when the wall fell and all that. And I was not surprised when Putin came along and said, we're going to pull it all together. I can understand their desire for revanchism. I'm one of those persons who believes that the world is divided between West and East, and you would agree. The West is about individualism, and the East is about control. And I believe that what we're going to get is all of the things that we hold precious coming under threat. And that's why I've been calling uh, with other people in the House of Lords for a really, really serious um, increase in in defence, and especially in the areas of, of uh, aircraft carriers and things like that. So I'm I'm a you might call me a warmonger, uh, you know I'm a bit in there with Churchill because I believe that the shit is going to hit the fan, and we have to be prepared. Louise. So, Jos, are you basically saying that our lot say they've done all they could and it's gone right from our point of view, but the Americans, you know, they sent us a dud batch. That is the subtext of what Chap said, yeah. Well, he needs to write a proper consumer letter, doesn't he? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> he needs to go back to the manufacturer and assert his rights. I mean, yeah. no, being a little bit more serious, I think the, the whole way that deterrence is meant to work just completely implodes upon itself and everyone's left there just going, oh my God, we're just little boys and our toys don't work and oh my God, the world might explode because that's the serious bit. If, because if the, if the play doesn't work, then we're all absolutely screwed because then no one believes the deterrence. So I think it's really serious too. Thank you. We're going to take a moment, uh, listen to an ad and then come back and hear from John. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. John, what's your story? In 1991, I started the big issue with Gordon Roddick of The Body Shop. So I was created by the peppermint foot lotion revolution. <laughs> uh, so I'm really, you know, marmalade shampoo, that's me. Um, but the, uh, and then I spent 10 years uh, working and working on this emergency because it was all about emergency, emergency, emergency. Then I was asked by the Times on the 10th anniversary, they said, so for the last 10 years you've been doing this, John, what are you going to do for the next 10 or 20? And I said, well, for the first 10 years, I've been mending broken clocks. For the next 10 or 20 years, I want to prevent the clocks breaking. So I created this methodology, which is called PEC, Prevention, Emergency, Coping and Cure. And I realized that virtually 80% of all the money that the government invests in and spends in, and all the money that is spent by charities and all that, is really in the emergency and the coping. So social security, which is not very secure, and actually not only is it not very secure, it doesn't take you anywhere. Social security and giving, and giving loans to students come from the exchequer. But as the, uh, in social security, it's a kind of handout to keep you quiet. And the same money is given to students so that they can go to the university and pay it all off later. And in my opinion, we need to turn social security into social opportunity. So if you're spending 80% just on emergency and coping and not any money, serious money on prevention and cure, then you are not getting, you're not creating a, an exit for people in poverty. And in my opinion... I went into the House of Lords uh, largely because I was sick and tired of people telling me that I was a beautiful butterfly, if you can imagine that. I <laughs> said, John Bird, you, you, you think so well and, you know, you're all over the place and you created big issue, invest and all sorts of stuff and you're in every country in the world and all that stuff. And I said, and I got really cheesed off because I thought the reason I have to think outside the box it's because the box isn't working. Mm. So like what you discovered in Cook and Wood, you get inside the box and the box stinks. It's rotten. It's a blocked drain. And I get in there to actually work on the box. I get in there to dismantle poverty. I'm cheesed off. So I have got a bill going through the house which has a cat in hell's chance, a snowball in hell's chance of making the statute books. Why? Because the Labour government-to-be or the Conservative government-to-be or the Liberal coalition-to-be or whatever, they are all obsessed with the way that they run government at the moment. So therefore, they spend an enormous amount of money. The Treasury loves spending money when the shit has hit the face. But John, I don't understand. So what are you saying is the story that you're talking about a systemic failure, systemic failure of our society, of our economy, of and our government? Country. Including right. me. Uh, and our thinking. So so how do you focus attention? Because, forgive me, that's a speech, not a story. 
What's the story that focuses attention? Because it's hard to lead the news unless you've got a story that will focus people's attention and that will make them grab onto something that says, okay, we need to do something about poverty. But if you look at it, you say it's a speech, and that's really brilliant because because revolutions start with speeches. <laughs> you know. But uh, do you think that's what you're after? I mean, in all seriousness. I'm after a revolution. And what would you like but a revolution to do? I'm not after a Marxist, Engelist, Leninist revolution. And the reason for that was when I joined the Revolutionary Party, they were all members of the middle class who were not loved by their parents. <laughs> so, so I decided that I didn't really, I couldn't work it out. They all thought I was a second-hand car dealer because I was always... But John, what are you, what, what are you after? And I say that like, with me, real heart. Let me yeah. tell you about my bill. My bill is calling for a Ministry of Poverty Prevention. And it's a very, very simple thing. And what it is, is it brings together all the examples that throughout the world of things that work, bringing uh, housing first, which comes out of Bakersfield in California, and all of these things, bringing them all together. So what we're doing in my work and in the big issue is we're building a ministry of poverty outside government. And when the next administration comes along, we're going to say, follow this and you will come to the promised land. We will be able to dismantle poverty. We will be able to help children whose parents have only one thing that they've given them, and that is the inheritance of poverty. So your story is the Ministry of Poverty Prevention. Yeah. Can we see a world in which the House of Lords, the House of Commons, a future government gets behind that idea? Yeah. Louise? I think it is absolutely critical that there are people like John who force us to look and see a world outside a box that we have been so shut in and sellotaped in and stapled in within the status quo of, you know, the, 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 the politics that we have lived for however long we've been adults. Because if you don't, if you don't see that there is an outside the box, you just work with what poverty of resource you have inside it. So I think that's really crucial. But, you know, in this country, we are not revolutionaries like the French. We're not bullshit. Um, we're not really collective cooperators like the Scandinavians. And so I wonder, how, you know, what does it take to get us to change? How desperate, how dire do things have to be? And I think it is really very dire. And I suspect it is when everybody, even those with resources, you know, we are at the arse end of empire and the wealth that has, you know, filtrated down to us but we are even wealthy middle class people are seeing their own children mm. with less opportunity less ability to be educated schools crumbling housing impossible i think it will take a huge amount of pain giles i think what james was saying in a polite way was that we've got everything except the intro uh, to a story if we're lucky in journalistic terms. And underneath that, we've got, as you said, a speech or an op-ed. And I thought you were going to bring as an intro what seems trivial compared with the uh, grand issues that you've raised, the fact that capital gains tax returns from Notting Hill, where, where you were, uh, exceed those from, what is it, Manchester, Nottingham and Birmingham combined. As, and I thought that what was going to follow was an oration about the fact that the UK is terribly centred, and the wealth of the UK is terribly centred on, 
on London. Um, and I, I, I submit that to you as, as a possible intro into everything else that you've said. Giles, thank you. The way this uh, ends, and, uh, and John, just so you know, is that I'm going to now come to each of you and say which story should lead the news. You can't choose your own. So, um, Louise, I'm going to come to you first. Uh, if you had a choice between the Ministry of Poverty Prevention and the concentration of capital in Notting Hill, <laughs> and uh, Giles is a uh, uh, priapic um, missile launch, which would you go with? <laughs> Not- um, I am going to go for John's, but I'm going to relabel it from the Ministry of poverty prevention because it sounds a bit Orwellian so we'd have to find a different title but I think in terms of its importance it is the central underpinning thing that will make our society work better. You know the reason why I think it's Orwellian is because governments sound like that. I know. They do sound like that. John? Uh, Giles I would go with your one because I think it really does open up the major thing we need to sort out our tridents. Giles your story? Uh, I'll go with Cook and Wood because I do think it's uh, a measure of a civilised society, the extent to which it makes a priority of those who are most disadvantaged. So uh, I'm going to slightly cheat because I think that I would give the most airtime to John's story, but I would lead on Louise's. And what I mean by that is actually I'd love to dissect the piece of legislation that you're putting before the House, John, in the Ministry of Poverty Prevention, because I'd love to understand what are the necessary levers, the necessary mechanisms, the necessary things that you could do. What would a ministry like that do? And then maybe deconstruct it and reassemble it in a whole bunch of other existing ministries so that those things actually happened. And that's the kind of thing I think that actually a responsible newsroom can do. It can make sense of ideas like this, even if it can't necessarily lead the news on it. So are you going to say? Can I, I was just going to say, uh, the person who has inspired me the most is Nye Bevin, yeah. who said that the idea of creating the NHS is absolutely impossible. The idea of calling it a national health service was very Orwellian. So, but we got used to it. And, we, and maybe we'll call this MOP rather than, you know... M- mop ministry. is good. Mop, yeah, because you're mopping up the mop shite. Mop is good, yeah. yeah, yeah. So mop. the NHS, what Nye Bevin said, we have to aspire to the impossible at this particular stage in life because the possible will not get us anywhere. Now, 70, 80 years later, we look at the NHS as possible. Even though that it's got so many things going wrong for it, we say it is possible. And, and so a lot of the impossibles of yesteryear are now the possibles of today. So I am, so, so I love the rebranding of the story. I'm afraid it's still running third on my running order. Mop, missile second, Giles, because I think you're right. I think that if our deterrence is a joke, then a lot of the thing, other things really aren't funny. And I would lead without question with Cook and Wood because I think the work you've done, Louise, on helping bring to light a story that is not nearly getting the attention it deserves is incredibly important and we shouldn't stop here. And we should keep on using every outlet we've got to try and get it on other outlets so that governments and governors actually come to the microphone and explain what they're going to do about what seems to me an absolutely inhumane and appalling situation at Cook and Wood. So with that, thank you to John Bird. Thank you, Louise Tickle. Thank you, Charles Wattell. A heartfelt thank you to our extremely patient audience here in the newsroom at Tortoise. 
Um, if you've got views uh, and you're listening into this news meeting, please do email us. We're at newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. And as you may have noticed, if you listen to the news meeting, we end with, you know, someone's point of view, someone sounding off the uh, warbling of someone about something. In that spirit, um, uh, I've gone back to recording an editor's voicemail and we're going to finish with that. Uh, thank you very much for listening and thank you for being here this evening. More of the same is different. It's just over halfway through February and perhaps it should come as no surprise that the predictions we made at the start of January already feel frivolous and eccentric. There's something about the start of the year, the holiday hangover and the high hopes that make you look ahead and imagine big new things are about to happen. But a month or so on, it's more of the same. Only more of the same is different. For much of my time as editor at Tortoise, I've left a weekly voicemail, but I put it on pause last year, and I'd love to tell you it's back by popular demand. Kindly, a few people did in fact ask for it, but more than anything, I miss doing it. It's a way to organise the scribbles in my notebook, a collage of questions and observations, an attempt to piece together what I've been hearing. And here's what strikes me this week. It's that the continuation of things is making for change. Take, for example, debt. Rising interest rates have been with us for a couple of years now. It's not new news. But the burden of higher borrowing costs is building with time. It's ratcheting up pressure on homeowners with mortgages and businesses with debts. And we're going to see more of it playing out in financial stress, in missed payments, in bankruptcies, and in the UK, a technical recession that'll feel more and more like a real one. And I should say that having spoken to a few central bankers since the start of the year, I can't help feeling that they're going to start cutting interest rates later and do so more slowly than many predict or hope. Their credibility, they know, is shot if they're seen to lose control of inflation once again. Or take the Magnificent Seven, aka the seven biggest US tech stocks, Amazon, Alphabet, Apple, Meta, Microsoft, NVIDIA and Tesla. It's not as though the escalation in the price of those tech shares is a new thing. Last year, they delivered a 107% return to investors, according to Bloomberg. The rest of the S&P 500 was 24%. Everyone could see what was happening. But now it's clear. NVIDIA alone has become a marker of the modern market economy. Deutsche Bank says the seven are, together, the equivalent of the second largest stock market in the world, four times bigger than Japan, bigger than the UK, France, Saudi Arabia combined. This is not a new direction. It's a continuation. But as a result, it's forcing a change in the way people think about the concentration of economic power. We're seeing regulators outside the US more eager to act. Governments, not just in the UK, are looking to juice their own stock markets. And you've got to think it's going to spill into a bigger public argument over capitalism itself. Inequality, not just between the rich and poor, or north and south, or included and excluded, but inequality between tech and the rest, between owners and workers, between the US and Europe, not to mention within the US too. More of the same is divisive. And if that's the case for politics on the left, migration, as the numbers keep on building, is doing the same for politics on the right. Small boats, the southern border, more of the same is making for a different, nastier politics. Most obviously and painfully, more of the same in Gaza is making for something historically different too. 
After the barbarism of October the 7th, the West united behind Israel's right to defend itself. Jews almost universally stood with Israel in grief and anger, fear and determination. As Bibi Netanyahu's government has persisted in its war against Hamas, as the death toll in Gaza has risen to an estimated 29,000 people, and he has continued to rule out the prospect of a Palestinian state, something profound has changed. It's not just public opposition to Israel around the world that has grown. Long-term allies in the West have peeled away. And for so many of us diaspora Jews, who so recently have been bound together in our sympathies, well, that community too is quietly splintering over about how to speak to the sadness and for some shame at the conduct of the war, how to address the dilemma of standing up for the existence of the State of Israel while speaking out against the Israeli government's military approach and Netanyahu's so-called doctrine of peace through strength. Imperceptibly too, a big change in geopolitics has made itself plain in 2024, even though it's nothing new. Saudi Arabia is a pivotal power in the world. Like China in the 1990s, just a few years after the Tiananmen Square massacre, Saudi still has few friends in the free press and little by way of warm feelings among people in the West, no surprise given the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and a long history of subjugating women. But just as they beat a path to Beijing in the 1990s, CEOs and politicians are commuting to Riyadh now. Saudi is not only decisive in resolving the future of Israelis and Palestinians, perhaps that's been more obvious than we've admitted for a while, but it's visible and vocal about it too. Its soft power investments from film to football to art to tourism were treated as a way to buy influence. Well, it's come to look like buying industries. And Riyadh is not just the fossil fuel player it always was – it's determining, along with China, the shape of the renewables and critical minerals industry that will enable the energy transition too. These things creep up on us. Russia has witnessed the murders of Kremlin critics Boris Nemtsov, Anna Politkovskaya, Sergei Magnitsky, Sergei Yushchenkov, Yevgeny Prigozhin and many more. So it should come as no surprise that Alexei Navalny is dead at the hands of Vladimir Putin's state. It's more of the same. And yet perhaps the reason that the death of such an exceptionally heroic and defiant man causes such despair, such a sense of pointlessness, is that it doesn't seem to be a harbinger of any change at all. Tortoise. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.